Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, my name is Philippa Fosterback. I'm director of the Institute of Business Ethics. And I'd like to welcome you to this uh, collaborative evening, this event, which has been organized by um, Editorial Intelligence in association with Taylor Bennett, um, ourselves, and the sponsor for the evening, to whom we owe a great deal of uh, gratitude for his very nice canapes and, uh, and wine, KPMG, uh, and in particular John Griffiths-Jones, who's on the um, uh, panel, for um, agreeing to, to this. So we're very grateful to you. Um, you will have noticed uh, on, your, on your chairs that the, um, tonight's event actually is in honour of the memory of uh, Chris Beresford, who was both the chairman of the Institute of Business Ethics and a partner at KPMG, and we're particularly pleased that so many members of his family could be here this evening. Chris was an excellent leader. He led from behind and he led from in, uh, from in front, which is what, what one always expects. But pushing us from behind, he pushed the IBE to raise the, or to live its vision in raising the awareness and spreading best practice in the field of business ethics. And that is what we're doing this evening in terms of talking about what I think, and I hope you all agree by virtue of all being here, is an extremely topical event. And I'm looking forward very much to the lively discussion that I'm sure that we're going to have. So without further ado, I'd like to hand you over to uh, our chairman for the evening, Sir Alistair Graham, who was former, formerly the chairman on the Committee on Stands in Public Life, and today, amongst his many other posts, I'm happy to say is an esteemed and valued member of the Advisory Council of the Institute of Business Ethics. Over to you, Alistair. Well, thank you very much, uh, Philip, and good evening, everybody. It's, uh, I'm, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to chair what I hope is going to be an interesting uh, session. My role, I think, is just to try and make sure it, it goes at a fair pace and that there's maximum participation uh, of the audience. So I've urged all of our panel to keep to their five minutes uh, and, and uh, not go over that. And I'm sure that they're very disciplined, experienced people, and, and they'll do that. Can I stress that this is not an occasion where Chatham House rules applies. Anything anybody says is on the record. Uh, and it's important that uh, we uh, understand that. So if I could uh, introduce our speakers who are, are going to deal with this issue of what can business teach politics about uh, ethics. Um, Alan Duncan, who is the Shadow Secretary of State for Business Enterprise and Regulatory Reform, key member of the Shadow uh, Cabinet, has uh, a very powerful uh, background, both in the private sector before coming into politics uh, and since he's been in politics. Then we've got Sir Rob Magatz, who Chairman of Legal uh, and General uh, Group PLC and Ensus Limited. He's also Chairman of European of Huntsman Corporation in the USA and Chairman of the Energy Technology uh, uh, Institute and a Senior Independent Non-Executive Director of Anglo-American PLC. Uh, and then on my immediate right we've got Caroline Michelle, uh, who is the Chief Executive Officer of uh, Peter's Fraser and Dunlop, which is uh, an artist agency, as I understand it, and has got a staggeringly impressive background in uh, uh, publishing. Uh, and then my immediate left, Liam Halligan, Chief Economist of Prosperity Capital Management and Economics Commentator for the 
uh, Sunday Telegraph. And then on my far left is John Griffiths Jones, UK Chairman and Senior Partner K KPMG. Uh, and the missing chair is should be Peter Oborn, who we are told is on his way. I suspect Peter's always on his way uh, to uh, uh, to something. So we sincerely hope that he's uh, he's going to join us. So we're going to kick off immediately by asking. Uh, Alan Duncan to uh, give his uh, approach to politics and business and whether they can learn uh, from their ethical experience. Chairman, thank you, and thank you all for coming on this rather sweltering evening. Uh, you command us to be short. I am both short in stature and assure you I will be short in content likewise. Um, I thought what I'd do to set the scene is pick seven areas where it is interesting to compare and contrast uh, the conduct of business and the conduct of politics and politicians. And in doing so, I've interpreted your sort of description of ethics very broadly and taken it to mean anything to do with standards in terms of transparency, honesty, integrity, uh, openness, presentation of the facts or whatever it might be. Uh, and I think I'm afraid to say that in every single category, as I think you will notice, um, business comes out ahead of politics, and it's a challenge for us in politics to try and close the gap. Um, the first, and I think this has been quite a, a searing experience for the Conservative Party until recently, is that any business has to protect its brand reputation. If the brand reputation goes, the whole business is threatened, even to the point of bankruptcy. And the same is true of a political party. If you lose your unique selling point and the trust of people, you also risk oblivion. But we don't work in the same sort of market as a company, although it's possible to be taken over, it's happened in the past, or it's possible to decline altogether and be replaced by another party. Normally what you have to do is to go away, think, uh, regroup, rebrand if you want to call it that, and somehow come back. So I think what business has... Um, Toward us, uh, I think it's been very important, and I'd like to think that at least we've been relatively successful in the last few years of um, reshaping ourselves and coming back as a trustworthy brand. My second point is, is the parallel that we can draw from the real thoroughness which I think businesses go through in getting listed on the stock exchange. Uh, I've been involved in an AIM listing a couple of years ago, and just recently on a, an LSE listing. And I must say, one of the things I've learned, and it's been very interesting to see personally, is the thoroughness with which lawyers, uh, directors, companies, chief executives do their due diligence in order to create a prospectus which is absolutely honest and, at the very least, tries to be. Um, I think this contrasts with the preparation of a political manifesto at an election, where, <laughs> more often than not, the clever words are designed to convince you of one thing whilst intending to do another and be able to get away with it. So I think that the parallels between a prospectus for a launch and a, an election manifesto are, are, are sadly different. The, one is an exercise in honesty, the other is an exercise too often, I'm afraid, in trickery. Thus, we have not had a referendum on the European Union, for example, and they would point to the language in their manifesto as justification for it, even though I think the consumer would have thought that one was due to come. Let's also then look at what a business does at launching a new product. Um, they're very, very thorough. 
they market test it. They work out if it's going to work. They think about the price. They think of the consumer effect. They look at its standards. They look at everything. Um, I'm afraid we don't quite do the same when it comes to making law. Um, our making of law is a shambles. Parliament is a dysfunctional institution, and the attention we pay to the detail of law as individual members of Parliament is execrable, and I think contrasts very badly with what um, companies do in launching a product. Businesses too, here's my fourth point, assemble a board with a variety of skills. They try and get the very best people around the table with a mixture of talent in order to make sure that together they can be the most effective. Um, in Parliament, that, if it happens, only ever happens by accident. And I think it's true to say that parliamentarians are being drawn from a, an increasingly narrow field. Uh, public sector, uh, PR, uh, assistance to existing politicians and things like that. And I think uh, Parliament is becoming weaker, uh, whereas with the growth of non-executives from lots of different areas, boardrooms are becoming stronger. Again, I think politics is the loser. Likewise, when it comes to recruiting. Now, we recruit some people in Parliament with less attention than a business would spend on recruiting a part-time secretary on a wet Wednesday. But with open competition and uh, proper advertising and proper interviews and proper assessments, business is better at recruiting people. And it looks for the talent to suit the job. Again, I fear that uh, politics doesn't really score very highly. Look at what happens at a reshuffle. If you know anything about an area of policy, the chances are that's the last ministry in which you, to which you will ever be appointed. So the reshuffle is, I think, the opposite of um, the good standard set in business for recruitment. Then there's one which is very hot and topical for today's votes in Parliament. Business requires very, very strict auditing, and people who work in business have to be responsible for their expenses and expect them to be audited and to be honest. So should we. And I think the steps that are being taken to make sure that we are, are right. All it needs with it is the responsibility of the press, not of the press, not to report them irresponsibly so that the transparency and openness of our conduct is not abused by those who have access to the information. And finally, my seventh point is people in business gain experience on their way up the the career ladder, uh, by moving company. Um, I suppose the parallel in politics would be that we should change party every now and then. Um, or perhaps have an occasional by-election that no one's expecting. Uh, <laughs> but the truth of it is that in politics, once you're in a party and once you're on the way up, you're in that rut. And unlike business, there's no obvious hierarchy. You can be a field marshal one day and a corporal the next as the leadership is swept away from you. So the career paths are very different. And uh, I think that what you have to accept is that people who devote themselves to politics and uh, party life uh, are making enormous sacrifice to choose a one single path for which there is no alternative unlike business. So those are my seven parallels. Uh, I'm afraid to say I think business on all seven is the winner. 
and I'd like to see a world in which politicians can catch up and perhaps equalise uh, the standards that are set by business. Well, thank you very much, Alan. Can I say, I should have said this at the beginning, Alan has to go just after 7 o'clock. He's always made that plain that he was here on, 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 on that basis. If there's an opportunity to bring him back in, in a different stage, we, we'll try and take advantage of that. So thank you very much for that, Alan, for kicking it off in controversial style. Rob. Very good. Well, thank you, Alistair. Um, I suspect that Philippa chose the title of tonight's discussion. I always observe the motto that people with glass houses should not throw stones. Uh, that said, after almost 40 years in line management, 30 with ICI and the last 10 with a number of other organisations, both in the business and public sectors, I've gained some perspectives on the subject. When I think about ethics in an organisational context, I think about values, standards, behaviours and attitudes and the overall culture of an organisation and, of course, its leadership. Every organisation needs values, explicit and implicit, and these need to be aligned, as Alan said, with its brand and its strategy. Legal in general, for instance, trust and integrity. We look after very large amounts of other people's money and look after their long-term financial security. Value for money, products and operations, and excellent customer service. And of course, we have to put that into practice uh, every day. Uh, no chauffeurs, chairman and chief executive, and the whole board travel on the tube, just like everybody else is expected to do, and so on. And of course, we have internal values, teamwork, meritocracy, un unselfishness, responsibility, and a whole lot of other things which we seek to sustain every day. And we live a we structure, not an I or a my. It's we and our. I can give another example of values. Uh, I work for a rather remarkable uh, Mormon family company, which is one of the top 10 chemical companies, global chemical companies in the world, and it has three explicit values. Every promise we make, we keep. Every employee will be treated as a member of the family. And if any employee anywhere in the world is in trouble, a member of the family will be with them within 24 hours. And third, a most unusual value, we will give back to society everything we have the privilege of earning. And you may have seen them in the FT list last year as the world's second largest corporate donor after Gates. Anyway, values are not enough. It's the standards you set and are policed by leadership that are the critical components. High and clear standards set behaviours, and when sustained, attitudes follow, follow, and over time, these permeate the bloodstream and genetic makeup of the whole organisation and become the culture. This takes five to ten years at a minimum, and that minimum has to be through sustained leadership and emphasis on the values you wish to have in an organisation. If you're a leader, you get the standards you deserve. And indeed, you can achieve virtually any standard you wish to achieve if you really want it bad enough. That's the key message for me, from me. I learned this first time out 30 years ago when I ran the ICI factory at Billingham, a very large factory. And as usual, if you're a works manager, I got a call at three in the morning when there had been a major acid spill and several people had been badly burnt and went to hospital. 
I thought about turning over in bed after I'd cross-questioned the informant, but I slept badly because I knew I had failed. Uh, so I got up, suspended the management, went to see the people in hospital, and made absolutely certain that everybody realised that they should think about not what they had done, but what they had not done to achieve the standards that are necessary. And I know after sustained management experience, you can drive a culture change, but you have to stick at it. So getting the culture you want is about sustained leadership by example and exhibited by every action over a sustained period. Thank you very much. Uh, you caught me by surprise there by your prompt ending. Uh, this, oh, I'm sorry. As, you no, not at all, not at all, absolutely. No, don't, uh, Did I short change? Yes, excellent. Let's move on to Caroline. Um, I've been in business for 20 years, and uh, my husband was a politician for seven or eight years. So when you say what business can teach politics about ethics, frankly, I think nothing, and I feel this both professionally and personally. Um, I think they're two completely different worlds. And I think whenever business people gather, and particularly these days when they talk about politics, and particularly these days, they talk about the failures of politicians. They say how incompetent they are. They say, if only they were more like us. If I ran my business like that, I'd get the sack. What, people, what business people really mean is that politicians should be more businesslike. And the subject tonight indicates that politics should learn from business. But is that possible? I don't think so. A successful business is a profitable business. The pursuit of profit puts pressure on people to compromise their standards and not just ethically. But if we take, for example, the ethics of truth and therefore of trust in business and politics, both of which are very important in my day-to-day -day life. For instance, it's incredibly important that my clients and the enormous number of media organizations that I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis know that they can trust me to tell the truth when I say that X will deliver her children's book on time and it will be published at such and such a date, or that the book will be perfectly timed for the TV series, or that that contract which hasn't arrived from Disney will be in the post and will get there. They have to know that's true and to be able to trust me. But business, as Alan says, is regulated. Legislation prevents businesses from preying on widows and orphans. Facts have to be verified. False or misleading statements bring severe penalties, all of which is enshrined in various companies' acts. So the business community, community asks if the FSA can supervise business, why not then a political services authority to do the same for politics? And there have been many attempts to put some sort of regulatory body in there for politics. All have failed, and not just because politicians are inveterate liars. <laughs> Morris Saatchi, discussing this issue, has a very good example. Imagine an election in which a daffodil production is the number one issue. The government would say, Daff daffodil production is up. The opposition would say, daffodil production is down on last year. The government will say, daffodil production is higher than under the previous government. The opposition would say, daffodil production is lower than the European Union average. And the Lib Dems would say, crocuses are doing well. <laughs> the striking feature of this exchange is that everyone could be telling the truth. The regulators didn't give up on politicians because they were liars. They gave up not because they couldn't be trusted, but because objective truth in politics is hard to find.
Business ethics fail in politics because a political party is not just an organisation. It's a movement, and at the top of it is a leader, and he has a court. There, in that court, if the eye of the king alights on you, you're powerful. If his eye roams, your strength ebbs. In business, you can get rid of your rivals. In politics, enemies don't go away. Forming government creates enormous resentments for people who are not in them. Politicians have their own agendas, themselves, their ambition, their party, their constituency loyalties. And of course, at the end of it all, they are, after all, rare and extreme and fragile human beings, as the Daily Mail shows us every day. And all of their life is conducted in the goldfish bowl of this extreme media attention. What ethics can business possibly purport to espouse to politics in that scenario? The loyalties of a team in business are likely to be more cohesive. Everybody in the company has the same goal. Profit, naturally, for which they may benefit, career enhancement, and of course a shared vision for the future of the success of the company. Successful business creates certainty. What politics deals with in everyday life is uncertainty, both in their own position, their own personal position, and in the outside circumstances. But perhaps to be less cynical, in the end, whatever world you're in, whether it's business or politics, coming through successfully and achieving your goals is really what it's all about. And it's not just the material, the consumer, or the worldly. The proof perhaps comes from the master of politics, when JFK was asked as a presidential candidate how he intended to defeat communism, he said it would take more than air power, more than financial power, even more than just manpower. He said it would take brain power. And how he defined that brain power was the mastery of the insides of men's minds so that people can see the splendor of our ideals. Ethically, whether in business or in politics, to begin our careers in both those fields, perhaps with JFK's splendour of ideals, is not a bad place to start. Thank you very much, Caroline. Right, let's move on to Liam. Uh, thank you, uh, Sir Alistair. While I uh, agree with a lot of what um, Alan Duncan said, uh, and I thought his um, pretty uh, admirable um, uh, list of how uh, business can uh, positively influence politics and how politicians can learn their ethics from business. I agree with Alan in principle, but I don't agree with him with the here and now, because I think for now, business can't teach politics very much at all, because uh, the stock of uh, the Western uh, business community, and certainly the financial elite, isn't very high at the moment. Um, in fact, it's, it's at rock bottom. And I'm not talking about the stocks traded on the FTSE 100 and the Dow Jones, though they've just entered a bear market officially today. I'm talking, of course, about public perceptions of the uh, business community, and these matter greatly. Um, business and commerce is an absolutely crucial uh, human activity, generating the wealth that allows pretty much everything else to happen, politics, the arts, culture more broadly. Um, yet the subprime debacle, I'm afraid, and the widespread fraud, greed, and cowardice which caused it hasn't only upended the global financial system and in turn the global economy, it's also once again rocked the general public's view of, of business. Now billions of people have been negatively affected by subprime, be they homeowners servicing an ordinary mortgage, entrepreneurs trying to refinance their homes, be they one of the growing number of unemployed, look at the US labour figures today, who are out on their ear as firms have slammed their doors shut. 
And this is due to our gummed up uh, credit markets, of course, hamstrung as they are by the lack of trust, by the lack of ethical behaviour, in my view, between our great clearing banks. Business and trade make the world go round, but because the Western banks don't trust each other right now, because they can't trust each other to do the right thing and only borrow money that they can afford to pay back, the wholesale money markets remain closed, frozen almost a year after subprime first burst onto the global markets, first burst out of the uh, business pages and onto the nation's and the world's front pages. And because of that lack of trust, because of that determination of a small number of ignorant bankers not to admit their losses, and because, above all, a lack of ethics, the rest of us are suffering. A banking system, ladies and gentlemen, that trades on serving us, that's supposed to serve the broader economy, is instead dragging the broader economy down. Now, politicians often come in for criticism, of course, due to a perceived lack of moral fibre. But for now, at least, the business community, despite Alan's general principles, which I agree with, for now, the business community isn't in any position to preach. And that's a great shame, because across the business community, including the financial services sector, of course, there are millions of men and women who, day in, day out, act according to the most exacting ethical standards as employers, as contractors, as counterparties. Business is full of ethical people doing ethical things. For profit, yes, but with a firm eye on a broader moral purpose, in my experience. Politics is too, of course, again, despite the, uh, the crude stereotypes. And in my experience, as somebody in business, as somebody uh, who's uh, covered politics, in my experience, politics and business they help keep each other in check, if you like. Business, when businesses act unlawfully, politicians uh, regulate, of course. They reshape the legal framework in which uh, businesses operate. And when ministers spend too much or become high on hubris, it's often the business community that leads the charge and tackles pomposity and irresponsible largesse. But for now, at least, and for some time to come, perhaps even for a generation, that important mechanism has broken down. This subprime fiasco, following hot on the heels of Enron and WorldCom, has largely robbed the business community, the nation's wealth generators, in many ways the nation's most energetic and talented people. It's robbed them of the ability to actively participate in the shaping of our broader legal and moral climate. And that's more than a shame. That's more than a shame. It's a net loss to our nation. Because business leaders tend to know their stuff they tend to be grown-ups who know how to live within the means. They tend to know more than politicians, in my view, what the country needs. Politicians, perhaps unavoidably, spend so long in their Westminster bubble, they need the street smarts and moderating influences that good commentary by business leaders can provide. Politicians need, in principle, the business community's fiscal rigour and often their ethical guidance. But for now, business doesn't have a leg to stand on. A few bad apples in the financial services sector in particular have ruined it for us all. Now, Sir John Harvey Jones once said that he was, quote, horrified ethics is only an optional extra at the Harvard Business School. That was in 1987. I'm sure given the proliferation of uh, corporate social responsibility, uh, it's not only compulsory now at HBS, but any self-respecting business school. But you know what? I wouldn't be alarmed if it went back to being optional or if it was scrapped altogether. Because I don't think you can teach ethics. At least I don't think you can teach ethics at the age that most people go to business school. 
Ethics is, or ethics are, to my mind, a code of conduct you learn as a child. You learn why you should act as if someone's watching you, even when they aren't. Why it's wrong to lie. Why it's sometimes the right thing not to press home your advantage too hard, even when you can, if that helps the common good. And all these notions apply to business. Act along these lines, and you'll dramatically increase the chances of your business succeeding and surviving for the long term. And this goes to the heart of the final thing I'd like to say. Sitting intelligent people down and trying to teach them ethics is insulting, be they politicians or business folk. And similarly, and controversially perhaps, I think the whole corporate social responsibility movement as well, and the desperate rush by business leaders to be seen as holistic and sustainable and cuddly, that's also pretty ridiculous too. CSR is now a multi-billion pound industry. Companies have CSR strategies, managers and departments. It's difficult these days to find a major Western company whose annual report doesn't extol their service to the community. The big supermarkets used to compete on price, now they compete over who has the biggest wind turbine. And I think CSR has made our companies and the public more cynical. That's because it's mostly, and there are honourable exceptions, it's mostly an elaborate PR exercise involving lots of empty, <coughs> futile gestures, if we're honest, which often detract from the fact that many businesses aren't tackling the very real and pressing problems we face. If we want to address climate change, for instance, we don't need corporate spin. We don't need an outbreak of consumer hand-wringing. We need a proper market for carbon and pretty stiff environmental regulations, and nothing else will do. Yet the CSR lobby is a, com a formidable combination of uh, PR folk and confused do-gooders, and that makes it almost unstoppable. And again, there are honourable exceptions, but it is mainly about corporate window dressing, and we all know that and the business community's attempt to adopt some of the worst attributes of the worst of our politicians, namely posturing, and as Alan pointed out, generally disingenuous behaviour. So serious business folk, in my view, should junk a lot of it and get back to plain speaking, plain dealing frankness that our national debate so badly needs and the people in business are generally quite good at. So my conclusion is that in general, the business community does have a lot to teach politicians about ethics, but for now, that important channel of influence in our politic is blocked, so damages the reputation of business by the financial scandals of recent years. And at the same time, yet conversely, business should be careful not to further undermine its standing and spread yet more scepticism by adopting the worst excesses of our politicians and the focus on spin, grandstanding and corporate posturing. Because you know in the end the punters aren't stupid. Ordinary people can see good character and good ethical behaviour a mile off. And while that may sound old-fashioned, that's what both our politics and our business need in spades. To reassure the broader public at this time of great change and fear, and re-legitimise the context in which both business and politics operate. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Liam. We have one final speaker, because it doesn't look like Peter Oborne is going to join us uh, this evening. But as I know, Alan has to go. I hope you won't mind if... Uh, you give me a brilliant first. Uh, no, no, I just thought it might, be useful. it might be useful to pick up one issue. You didn't mention the issue in your list of accountability uh, between the private sector and... and uh, 
politicians. Was that deliberate, or do you think that there's a different approach here? Uh, of course it wasn't deliberate. Um, I suppose we are ultimately accountable to the electorate in the way that um, businesses are to their customers. And so accountability is a permanent and regular feature of our existence, which is why we are always mindful of our electorate and absolutely everything we do. Uh, in a way, we are almost too accountable in the sense that instead of looking at the long term, the sort of things that Liam, in a way, was saying we should focus on, we tend to be too short term because we're always sucking up to the next headline. So um, there is a danger that accountability can be misunderstood and counterproductive. We have to be accountable to what? Uh, just to the next vote? or the next opinion poll, or to the long-term interests of the country we want to serve. Um, in the end, of course, it's a balance of the whole lot. But I hope that within the short term, we can always take a long enough term view. I think, as Liam, in a way, is pointing out, one of the problems we've had is that, um, uh, I would argue this, wouldn't I, the last elections have been, uh, if not bought, at least won on the back of economic prosperity that was not going to be sustainable. And ultimately, it's a longer-term accountability that's going to bite them where it hurts. Uh, so, um, you know, it means that newspapers and those who scrutinise us have to be as acute about the long-term interests of the country as they are about the short-term headlines that sell their newspapers. So in that sense, it's a two-way street. Thanks very much. John, our final... Uh Speaker. Very good. Well, thank, thanks very much. I, I, I need to say a few words just before I give you a, a couple of thoughts uh, about Chris Beresford, who was a dear, dear friend and colleague. He's a partner at KPMG for uh, 21 years, hugely highly regarded in our firm and, uh, and much missed. Uh, he managed to combine both intellect uh, and integrity. So I was thinking this evening, I wonder what he would have said if, uh, as he should really be, he was sitting here, not me. And I suspect he would say, uh, what can business teach politics about ethics? I think Chris, in his charming uh, way, would have said uh, not a lot at all. But he would have added, but I think that politicians can learn something from mm. business. And this is a pretty important and subtle difference. As I come tail end, Charlie, I'll give you just a couple, uh, a couple of examples. First of all, and relevant to my industry, things called rules versus principles. These are nice words and go right to the heart uh, of business ethics. The trouble with principles, which are admirable in their own way, is that they only work with people of principle. <laughs> and this is, of course, the dilemma that, uh, that, that principles can be avoided if you're, if you're so minded. Uh, and the thing about that is that if you can't cope with abiding by principles, then you have to have rules. And uh, in those of you who are accountants will know Americans sort of nearly wrecked New York, well, not wrecked New York, but severely hampered New York by stringing it out with some things called the Sarbanes-Oxley regulations, which essentially just transferred a huge load of business to London, which is a huge and big price to pay for basically a lack of uh, ethics and being able to cope uh, with principles. Because rules, which, which translate into laws, are really very painful. And those of us in business who know about health and safety, who study the tax uh, volumes with uh, any degree of uh, care, or indeed are now subject to the accounting regulations, uh, know exactly what the, um, what the consequences of a lack of coping with principles uh, really, really means. And I think that the lesson that the politicians could learn, and, and forgive me being either impolite or controversial here, is it really shouldn't take five years to sort out this business of donations to parties and expenses, which the business world has been subject to disclosure in annual accounts of what people get paid 
for many years, and we do it. And it's actually not very complicated, and it takes up a page, and everyone turns to that page and reads it, and they go, oh, that's quite a lot, or that's not much, and actually they've got really quite used to it and move forward. And there is only one thing to do here, which is to get the bloody thing out in writing so everyone can read it and move on, rather than constantly wheedle around this subject and cause a huge amount of frustration upon those you know, who you seek to rule. Because at the end of the day, we're custodians of our business, and we're meant to be people of principle, and your custodians will hope to be custodians of our country, and I rather think that the same principles should apply. My second point is about openness uh, and disclosure. Uh, and I think that business is better. By the way, business doesn't always get this right, but when it does, it absolutely lays complex issues bare for everybody to read. Uh, there are many examples of this being got right, and unfortunately many examples being got wrong. But if you take uh, the uh, sub uh, subprime uh, crisis, that, that some banks and some organisations have dealt really well with this uh, in the medium term by actually laying out the fact. We own some of this stuff. It may be worth 80. It may be worth 70. We valued it at 75. If you know more about this than we do, you can make the necessary adjustment and see our figures accordingly for what they are. And that's an extremely responsible way of behaving ethically by openness uh, and disclosure. The opposite of that, which is disastrous, which again I think has been referred to, is uh, a spin or worse still, patronising the British public. I think the British public are enormously more intelligent than, than leaders tend to give them credit for, especially leaders in a, in a tight spot. television executives. Uh, the, the real need is to explain what's going on in words of one syllable, say, look, the price of oil is going up, the Arabs are therefore richer, we're therefore poorer, therefore it's going to be a bit painful for the next two years. I don't think the average man or woman on the Clapham omnibus has a great deal of difficulty in, in, grasping, uh, in grasping these salient points. Because the danger of patronisation, I can give you 100 examples out of business, is if leaders give the impression of being in total control when things are going well, uh, which is actually just due to an economic upswing, they get landed with the blame of being totally in control during the downswing and attempt suddenly at the last minute to blame this on international factors or things beyond our control or things like that simply doesn't work as well as if the facts have been laid out all the way through saying we've been extremely lucky this year because the economy's gone up and we've been extremely unlucky this year because the economy's gone down and I am a mere manager of my business, not a, not a total wizard. Uh, I think if you want to be in business for the long term, you have no choice but to be open and disclose. And I presume, therefore, if you want to be in politics for a long time, that the same rules would probably just as well apply. Thank you very much. Well, I'd like to thank uh, all the panel for the uh, uh, succinctness with which they've got their point of view of this evening. So we've now got 35 minutes uh, to involve uh, members of the audience. You'll see uh, some people with microphones uh, there. It might be helpful if people gave their names and, and, and said they were, if they were from an organisation. So who would like to kick off? Uh, Peter York from The Independent. I think one of the problems is that uh, politicians starting in the 80s, and it's got worse and worse and worse, are so hugely in awe of business for all the wrong reasons. Because the fact of the matter is, those businessmen, those dedicated businessmen who've been co-opted into government at higher goal-setting levels have often been failures. And 
If you look, I mean, if you say that business is wonderful because it's highly regulated, you would have then to say that the regulation was done spontaneously and proactively and eagerly by a CBI committee um, back in 1947 or something like that. And that wasn't the case. It's politicians dragging them, screaming, absolutely screaming against all those regulations. Um, so it's as well to remember that. There are things that, that po politics can learn from business, but not in the matter of goal setting, and to a very considerable extent, not necessarily in the matter of, the matter of ethics. One other point, both politics and large corporate business have a double standard about how they behave in their Western democracy, democratic countries of origin and how they behave overseas. Absolutely yawning chasm. And very often, uh, they're working hand in hand. That government and that large identifiable national <coughs> PSC doing pretty terrible things. Thank you. Alan, did you... Want to particular comment on that? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, having run quite a lot of global businesses, I just don't accept that comment. Uh, when I was with ICI and subsequently with BOC and in Anglo, we operate precisely the same standards with the same disciplines and the same emphasis on uh, so, uh, social engagement, safety, environmental impact, and contribution towards the uh, uh, countries and communities in which we're engaged. So I just don't accept that. Major multinational corporations operate, by and large, to precisely the same standards wherever they operate in the world. And would you include BEE in that? I mean, um, well, of course, we're talking uh, in the BAE case, if indeed, uh, uh, and I said I wasn't going to throw stones, and I don't have all the evidence. But we are talking about a fair time ago. And can I just relate a story? Because we in ICI in the mid-90s were also very concerned about how our people would conduct themselves in developing countries. Uh, and in fact, Philippa's predecessor uh, in the Institute of Business Ethics uh, was the company secretary of the ICI. And, uh, I, and he and I came up with a code. But the, the issue about the code was actually how you apply it in each of the different cultural contexts. And so we had extensive training. Then one night I was in Busan in uh, Korea, which was one of the more corrupt countries, but trying to become a part of the modern world. Uh, and I got a letter under the door signed by a whole lot of junior staff complaining about their management. Uh, when I got home, I sent out a, uh, uh, the wife, a Chinese wife of one of the staff, to meet these people in a hotel uh, unseen by their management. And that discovered some illicit payments that shouldn't have been happen happening. Uh, needless to say, we enforced exactly the same standards. The management went. Uh, and we put in a cleaner to clean up the whole operation and we confessed everything to the Korean government and started again. Major multinationals are very conscious of their reputation wherever they act and will not do corporate corrupt practices wherever they practice. Now, 
you, you're quoting a particular example, Alistair. Uh, I don't know the facts about that situation. <coughs> but I can assure you the major companies do, do not any set very precise standards, but they police them. Liam, you wanted to. Two things very briefly. One on that, as somebody who spends a lot of time running around the emerging markets, um, uh, I wouldn't want us to think that um, British businesses are viewed as you know, sort of nice chaps who suck Murray mints and wear lily whites um, and you believe in fair play. But there is something in that stereotype. There's something in that stereotype. Um, in my experience, if you're from this country, um, or the British Isles in general, second only to the Scandinavians, you're, you're, you're trusted more often than you're not. That's something that we should cherish um, not fall back on. Uh, my generation of business folk need to add to that. Um, it's not always the case, but there's something there. Same thing, just on, on something that Peter said, um, uh, and this really does go to the heart of the nexus between business and po politics. When business people come into politics, they do often fail. I think sometimes they fail is because the kind of business people that have really high profiles that make them uh, attractive to politicians to a point aren't necessarily spending their time doing business or any good at business. That's one point. <laughs> Second thing is, uh, I make an exception in my case. Second thing is that uh, often good business people go into politics and they can't believe the culture. They can't believe that you can't say what you mean. They can't believe how dysfunctional a lot of politics and, frankly, a lot of Whitehall is. Um, so between those two stalls, um, a lot of people, one would expect to be very successful in Whitehall as business leaders fail. Okay, question here and then one on the back. Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence. Liam, a question for you because you're the member of the commentariat on the panel. How ethical is the media in all of this and what are the differences between the business commentators and the political commentators? Who's got the upper hand morally or ethically? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of... There's a lot of um, um, I'm only actually a journalist on Saturday mornings these days. <laughs> Sometimes it's Saturday afternoon. Yeah. Don't tell the sub editors. Uh, I failed it ages ago. What are you talking about? Anyway, um, <laughs> I, th I think there is, um, uh, and I've also been a member of the lobby. Um, um, I think there is, there really is a difference between business commentators and economics commentators. I mean, if you're a business commentator, you know, you can't, you know, you write because there's a lot more numbers. Yeah, if you write a number, it can be proved wrong, yes or no. Uh, you very rarely in business use off-the-record quotes, you know, said a member of the board, because you could move the market. And that's not just the market in opinion, but you could move the market, you know, in, in real assets that form part of people's estates and pension funds. It's really serious, grown-up stuff. It doesn't go away. Um, and in my view, and, I, and I, I've said what I've said about the reputation of British business abroad, uh, 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 in my view... British uh, business journalists are second to none in their integrity. Now, there have been some scandals in recent years um, involving editors, um, <laughs> who I could mention. Um, um, but in general, uh, British business journalists are really, really straight dealing. And don't you think when you work on the FT, you know, there used to be an old kind of pre-Big Bang Tourism on the FT, and the last phone call you make when you file your FT story is your broker, because you know what's going to ha happen in the market the next day. But that that just doesn't happen. That's unthinkable. 
um, that that would happen in journalism today. So I really think business uh, commentators are a lot more straight-laced than uh, political commentators who, in my experience, my observation, tend to rely on uh, what's known in the trade as sources close to the deadline. Um, and it's clear to I've seen I've seen I've seen political careers tumble on quotes that I've got reason to believe and information to believe were made up. Okay, a question of the back there, and then this lady down here. Thank you. I'm Richard Hamilton from KPMG. Um, the point I wanted to make was from my point um, on the position I had as a councillor. I was a councillor for six years, and I think most people in this room. Uh, would be amazed if they knew the compliance regime that many local officials um, who are also in the political realm are subject to, the Standards Board for England, I bet is something many people haven't heard of. Um, and it, well, I, 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 would be, I would be dismayed if you weren't, Sir Alistair. Um, but my point is related somewhat to your former role in that one of the things we have at KPMG are the values. And Sir Rob put his finger on it talking about values, culture, leadership. And we have, as you would expect, very high quality risk management procedures. I'm sitting next to the head of risk. Um, but we have the value, above all, we act with integrity. And I think, above all, we act with integrity. Most people know when something, I believe, is right or wrong. And therefore, I sense some politicians at the moment are being caught who are not in any way dishonest, but there are so many rules, it seems to me, and disclosure requirements that we're not seeing the wood for the trees. And MPs who are on all parties are being harangued by, by the press or call, being called into question. It could be correct, I don't know, but it seems to me that some people are resigning because they haven't filled in the right form. And I think we're missing the point, and we are meeting against a backdrop in Parliament where politicians are regarded at a low ebb, and that really bothers me. If you care about civil society, we have got to restore trust um, in the political system, and I, I just fear that the compliance regime of ticking boxes might not do it. And if we could move to more of a values approach, uh, we might be better off. Yeah, I thought the rules too complex for you to know when it's right or wrong? Yes, I think they are, actually. Um, you know, for instance, we have to report some things to the Electoral uh, Commission and also duplicate that declaration to the Parliamentary Commission of Standards, and it's very difficult to know when you have to do that. So it's very, very easy to make an honest mistake, and I think some of my colleagues have been tripped up. And the climate in which there's a bit of a sleaze fest at the moment is the basically press inquiry is how can we trip up a politician today and how can we get away with writing something that makes them look bad uh, without being sort of done over for it. So it is a very, very difficult climate and I don't think it's healthy in the end. I don't think it does anybody any good. I don't think it does the press any good, doesn't do politicians any good. It doesn't really make... Um, Politics. I mean, transparency doesn't really add anything of particular value. Uh, I said in my opening remarks, I think we should have things that are audited and open. I fully believe that, but in a way that is not then abused. And our honesty, I think, has to be matched by uh, a reasonableness uh, on the other side. Uh, otherwise, we just keep going downhill. I think. Will you forgive me if I... Yes, uh, sure. Thank, thank you very much, Alan. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Ah,
it's a shame Alan Duncan is leaving because uh, <laughs> you scared him away. As he was talking, I was noting uh, the analogies he was drawing and thinking about the disanalogies that would undermine his case. Um, mainly that business is in it for the long term, usually, and regulated from outside, and politics is in it for the short term and not regulated. And other panel members pick this up in various different ways. Um, especially Carolyn Michelle, who said that um, regulators, regulation isn't possible in politics because there are no objective truths, which rather alarmed me. Um, but I was going to ask the panel, all of you, actually, is there any element of regulation that's been successful in business that you would like to see imposed on politics, that you think would be possible to impose on politics, and that you would like to see imposed on politics? Okay, Caroline, have you any, any particular imposition of a rule? Or? Well, I think, it's, I think it's really difficult, because the thing about business is... Um, you know, politics, politics, politicians always overpromise. You know, it's what they do, it's what they have to do because, you know, they're supposed to deliver and then there's no accountability for delivery because time has run out or, you know, governments change or policies change or people are removed from their positions. And as Alan said, you know, if you have expertise in a certain place, you're put somewhere else. So it's very difficult. Whereas in business, you know, you, you, do, you do have the deliverables. So, I think, I think it's really difficult, and I don't know how you begin to regulate um, politics, but I don't know enough about politics to be able to say that. I certainly know in my, my business, you know, every single aspect of it is regulated, if not by um, bodies, they are by your, by your clients, and if you don't deliver, you know, you're hopeless. In politics, if you don't deliver, you move on to another ministry, or you move on to maybe a different party or whatever. So I, I don't have the experience to know the political world well enough to know how you begin to do it. But what about, for example, the expenses row that's been <laughs> raging for the past uh, year? Uh... Well, they're all innocent, aren't they? <laughs> Isn't that what we're told? <laughs> OK, John. Yeah, I can give you some examples of things I think have worked extremely well. I'm not sure how, how to extend them into, into the political arena, but I think that if you look at the... The, the rules of the takeover panel or the combined code in the UK, we believe we have a business regulatory system that is, quote, better than anybody else's in the world. It may be not perfect, but very much fit for purpose and pretty much the, I say envy, yeah, probably the envy of lots of other countries. And so, you know, we, I know that we can do better. And both documents, actually, the code, the takeover panel code and the combined code, are extraordinarily short. Uh, they would be disappointing to printers, um, you know, 20 pages each or something. Um, and they've served, you know, they've taken that onto the top of the tree. So I think it is possible to use, to use um, you know, regulation, or, and they're both voluntary, by the way, or they're not partly voluntary, but they're, they're, they're sort of complicatedly not... Not, uh, not law. Liam, apart from uh, John's excellent disclosure point he made in his opening remarks, a couple of thoughts spring to my mind. Uh, as, a, as a political journalist here, I was always absolutely staggered and shocked at how supine the select committees were, given that they're meant to be holding uh, our overbearing uh, executive uh, to account. I, I could barely contain myself uh, when I learnt, and you know, wizened lobby hacks would raise their eyes, laugh at me, and buy me another drink. Um, I was amazed to learn that you know the government whips office decided who was on the select committees, 
decided who comprised the, the, the bodies that are most supposed to bring powerful um, uh, ministries to account. You know, the, the model of the non-executive director isn't perfect, but um, in my experience, if you're a non-exec, it is your job to go into the room. You're invited into the room, but it's your job and your reputation stands or falls on your ability to make really difficult points, to be a professional pain in the neck. That's what you're meant to be as a non-exec. Sometimes it's a bit cosy. I don't like the way there's all these kind of endless chains of mates giving each other non-execs. That really annoys me. I think that's terrible for business. But I think politics can certainly learn. You know, it should not be the case that the main select committees are stacked with members of the same party as the government. That's lunacy, in my view. It's the inverse of the way it should be. They should be stacked with sort of people from, I don't know, Plyde and the SNP. But you get the point. It's a reductio ad absurdum. There should be heavier opposition. Um, you know, this isn't madness. This is the way a lot of uh, bicameral systems work, but not here. Rob. Uh, two comments. Uh, I think one can believe the solution lies in legislation and regulation, and I agree with uh, the previous contributor in the audience. You can have too much of that because it misses the point. Uh, the more you pile it high, the less it will be studied, observed, and, and box-ticked. The, the whole issue is about vision, values, and integrity of an organisation. That's the issue. Which is about behaviour. Yes, well, attitudes and culture, actually. Behaviour is what you get on the spot. The attitudes and culture that drive those behaviours are what's critical. Anyway, uh, I do think there's one thing government can do better in general. Uh, we always seem to have legislation and regulation which has unintended consequences. Uh, and those consequences very rarely seem to have been examined. Now, Nigel Turnbull started this in the business world. It's a part of the governance regime, and I agree with John's comments. Um, and all of us in business study in great detail. And we call it risk management. We look at all the things that could go wrong, and we look at how we plan to mitigate those. And we do that before we take the decision to invest or to pursue a particular path in strategy. Have we, how many times have we seen over this last few years something done and then it actually creates the perverse or unintended consequences and then it's undone and something else is done. And so I would strongly commend that actually the risk management process that is adopted by business actually is a part of the legislative yes. framework. The gentleman had his hand up before, <laughs> uh, and then the lady in front, and then... Uh, Charlie Burgess, whose job is it, if, it, if it's anyone's, to regulate how deep businessmen, and in particular those in the banking industry, have their snouts in the trough? I'm going to answer that head on. I'd say one thing about this parliamentary expenses thing. You've got to have a scandal every 10 years to keep people in check. <laughs> right? That is the crude reality of human nature. And if we disregard that, then we don't understand what we're dealing with here. Yeah, it's grubby. Hacks that put their foot, foot, feet indoors. Hacks that go after people. You, know, you need that to happen every 10 years uh, to act as a deterrent. Um, and someone had to say that. And there's a one day a week journalist, I'll say it. Uh, on Charlie's point, uh, well, I really uh, despair at the uh, ownership structure of our financial services industry. It's not the sort of thing that, that nice boys spend their time thinking about, but when you uh, spend time with a Bloomberg screen like I do, and you can look up any company in its ownership structure in about 4.4 seconds, it gets quite interesting. Um, 
because our, our sort of great investment banks, so-called, they're all owned by each other, and they all own sort of 6 or 7% of each other. They all have sort of cosy stakes. And what's happening here is a breakdown of the joint stock company, because who should really be watching the bank execs run things prudently, don't take excessive risks? They're the shareholders, of course, because that's the way a joint stock company is meant to work. That's how capitalism is meant to work. But when your shareholders are all other banks that are doing the same thing, and they all have small stakes in each other, you don't have big enough shareholders, you don't have somebody who can pick up the phone and say to some pumped-up um, uh, uh, banking executive, look, you're really making a hash of how you're running this bank. I don't like what you're doing. I want you to be more prudent. Uh, I don't mind taking a bit less uh, yield. I don't mind the figures coming in slightly under because we've got a name for prudence and being around for the long term. But when you've got an ownership structure in our banking system like you currently have, as I say, and it's not widely thought about and, and, and certainly not widely commented on, where each bank in general is owned by other banks with small share packets, conveniently sized, big enough um, to take a share in the upside, but not big enough to take a share in the responsibility when things go wrong. That is a bad situation. And I would ask our big pension funds and insurance companies to step up to the plate here and actually take responsibility for the ownership of the assets that they have and start annoying people. You know, Start being a professional pain in the neck, as I've said. Um, because we're really dealing with the wealth of nations here. Uh, and as we've seen in spades in the last year, when this uh, banking system goes down, the, the, the fallout effect is absolutely enormous. And ordinary punters who've never owned shares in their lives uh, find themselves unable to, to carry out the most basic uh, uh, financial transactions. Uh, legal gentlemen, as you probably know, has about 5% of the UK equity market on behalf of its customers, uh, 300 billion under management, earned through the trust and confidence of all the people who've placed their savings, their pensions with us. Uh, we act as agents for those people. Uh, we have thousands of meetings with companies every year. You'll have seen us in the press when we've been uncomfortable about the conduct of certain companies. You may have seen us in the press last week in connection with one of the banks. Uh, and, uh, uh, and we report back to the major pension fund trustees uh, whose money we are managing on their behalf as to how we voted and the issues uh, upon which we feel strongly. So uh, the answer to the question is it's shareholders. Uh, that's who's got the responsibility to make sure that management are paid for what they deliver and that they don't survive if they don't deliver what is expected of them. And similarly, uh, we always vote. Every resolution we vote on every public company. And generally, we, because of our leadership role in the London market, uh, other institutions tuck in with us if they share the same concerns as, as we do. And so we exercise quite a lot of leverage. And we do that on behalf of our clients. We're their agents. Okay, there was a lady there. Um, my name is Linda Kennedy. I'm a columnist and broadcaster. Um, we seem to be talking a lot about the regulatory equivalent of the morning after pill here. It's kind of sorting things, sorting out the problems after they've gone wrong. I'm just wondering if the answer is education. I mean, Liam talked earlier about the fact that it's too late to teach politics, 
teach ethics to politicians at the time that they, they start legislating. So I'm wondering, you know, should there actually be a compulsory GCSE in ethics? And indeed, would there be special penalties if one plagiarised that paper? <laughs> what do the panel think? The National Audit Office do have some very good educational tools on ethical issues which they take around to local authorities. I'm not sure you... I think it's very difficult to learn ethics in a classroom. I think it's quite easy to learn ethics as one journeys through life. Um, so I think it's part of one's early career. Uh, certainly as a, as a junior accountant, you very quickly got taught how to add up, uh, what truth and fairness meant, quite uh, how to do an audit uh, in a way that I think if you were at school you would never have learned. So to me maybe it belongs you know, on day one of your, your, your career with your, your first employer and it is in the interests of your employer to get the, the ethics of his or her organisation dropped into you at the first time. But John, point. how effective do you think organisations are in measuring uh, the capacity of an organisation to find out what, where something's going wrong. The asset test for me is always in an organisation, can the most junior person whistleblow uh, about something that they've seen or, or disturbed about uh, and do that without the fear of their career being blighted or their, in some way, losing uh, their job? Because the lot of the whistleblower over the years has not been a very happy one. Good point. Um, yeah, no, I, I think whistleblowing does work. Um, I mean, I've, I've seen companies that have it. We, we, we have a, you know, a hotline somewhere. I think, I think there is a danger to your job, but the danger isn't the bullied danger, just merely that by the time you, you want to blow the whistle, you probably don't, are very unhappy with the organisation that you work for. So, I mean, whilst that's not entirely, you might be sort of saying, well, that's a cynical answer, but I, I don't mean it like that. I think that, mm -hmm. that long before you want to go and anonymously blow a whistle, Logically, you would go and see the person you worked for or someone you worked with and say, do we really do this here? Or but is you need this the right culture way? for people to feel confident to do that, do you? You do. You do. Um, yes, uh, uh, I think most companies have established uh, various means that staff can use to access uh, uh, the real decision makers or to protect their anonymity if they wish to bring something to the attention. Uh, of course in public companies uh, we have audit committees, often the audit committee looks at uh, as a part of its normal process, looks at uh, the investigations the various uh, concerns expressed and makes sure that the processes work to have those resolved satisfactorily but it all comes back to culture if you have an open transparent culture then actually there is no difficulty the greatest difficulty is where you don't have that you believe that, Karen? Well, I think, um, I think it comes back to, you know, Linda's point is about educating people and, you know, Liam quite rightly says you can't have a GCSE in it really, you can't teach it. But it's about, you know, businesses don't make decisions, it's the people within them who do. And to work ethically, you know, is as much the duty and the, the what the individual has to do, because it's the individual that shapes the culture of the company. And obviously there's a leadership issue there, a very important leadership issue, because if you have the trust of the people who you work with, and they believe in your integrity, 
Um, they, that culture then permeates through the building. But, but it has to also be the responsibility of the individual to know how to behave ethically in a company culture as well as in the political environment. Yeah. And I think that's a very, very basic thing. And I don't know if business or politics teaches it. I think you learn it um, at various stages through your career and through your life. I would argue, Caroline, that leadership generally has to take responsibility for yeah. setting the standards. I think that's very, very, very important. And I think it's the team you build around, build around you and the trust that you and they engender in each other. It's a sort of symbiotic relationship. And I think you can certainly feel it in cultures where it doesn't work. And I think it's a very difficult thing to establish in politics because it's a very different way of working. You don't have quite that team thing. We've seen cabinets unbelievably divided. You know, how can you behave ethically when the person sitting next to you know who's got their own agenda and it's probably to get your job, yeah. stab you in the back? Now, obviously, you have that in business too, but it's on a very different um, field. Okay, there's a question over here. Hello, Sarah Modlock. I'm a financial journalist. Um, I was interested in the comments that John made and that Liam made about um, regulation and uh, British public being smarter than we think. And as a former financial regulator, I have to say that I, that I didn't find that to be the case and, and that regulation will always be in existence because a large part of certainly financial regulation was protecting the British public from itself. Um, and unfortunately, there's no parallel with, with political um, regulation there because we, we presumably wouldn't want to protect the electorate from themselves and kill off democracy, so for what that's worth. Um, my question is rather different, though. Um, looking at political ethics, business ethics, which is the tail and which is the dog when it comes to the rather topical issue of Zimbabwe? I mean, I, I, I agree with you um, in the sense that uh, uh, I think the British public smarter than the political media classes think when it comes to seeing through spin and seeing good character and, and looking at, you know, glossy corporate reports of do-gooding and, 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 you know, so I think they're smarter instinctively uh, than we give them credit for. But of course, when it comes to um, uh, personal finance, it, it's absolutely risible, the level of uh, uh, knowledge in this country and, and, and in the US as well. I mean, the subprime crisis was basically, you know, a lot of it was about selling people uh, mortgages to people who, who had no jobs, no income and no assets, so-called ninja mortgages. I mean, what an idea in Western civilization. We're going to sell you a mortgage you don't understand and then we're going to take your house, even though you've got nothing else. It's an absolute scandal. I just think it's worth reflecting on that because that's what we're facing uh, and that's where the financial services industry has got us, uh, ours and America's um, in the main. Um, so I think we really do need to address the level of financial education. And it's my experience as a journalist covering this sector very closely over many years that uh, while business tends to give lip service to uh, financial education, uh, that tends to be the limit of their uh, exploits in this area. I'd, I'd just like to comment on Zimbabwe because it's a particularly difficult issue. Uh, I've been involved because uh, I've been on the board of Anglo-American for 10 years. Anglo has been in Zimbabwe. Uh, since it was Rhodesia, uh, and uh, uh, and and uh, you will have read about the the difference of view, and in fact, it, there is a difference of view in the media about what the right thing for us to do. We've been developing a platinum mine over 20 years. It's still not in production. Won't be for another five years. Uh, we have about 20,000 people dependent on us. Who we're feeding. Uh, what do you do? Uh, if you exit, 
government will take it over and give it to a cronies. Our people will be subject to the same regime that the other poor and Zimbabweans are. It will not make any difference to whatever happens to the present regime in Zimbabwe. Where, where is your ultimate responsibility? It's an extremely difficult ethical issue, and there isn't an easy answer to it. Uh, and that's the debate we've had extensively on the board. We're going as slowly as we can to develop it, so it's not confiscated. And at the same time, we're looking after the people uh, who are highly dependent on us in that part. And we're getting food to them, we're bringing it in from South Africa. Uh, um, and essentially, we're committing no new money, not that this is a central issue, because all our money is locked into Zimbabwe and has been. Uh, and can't be moved out. So we're using and recycling the money to keep that operation available for the future of the people of Zimbabwe when they are fortunate enough to have decent governance. Okay, one final question. I think there was a gentleman there. Thanks. Um, I'm David Seymour. I used to be political ed editor of the Mirror, uh, or the Mirror Group, and um, I only work as a journalist on half a day a week, so I'm afraid I'm more sceptical than Liam is about um, what I suppose you might call the hounding of uh, politicians and business people. Uh, and what I'd like to say is that I think what's missing from this debate, as is missing through the debate generally, is that there's no real perspective put on what ethics are. And, um, you know, when we talk about the teaching of ethics, we're talking about something that's quite academic. But when you actually come down to it, and this is an argument I used to have, well, I've had with colleagues down the years, um, it's never made me very popular with journalists, which is that how do you, if a, if a politician, for example, um, fiddles, I don't know, what it, I mean, the Wendy Alexander thing is a classic case, you know, here's a woman who's, who stood down because she was being persecuted over a late declaration of a 500 pound uh, or 900 pound um, uh, uh, donation to a, a non-leadership campaign. And uh, for whatever good she might have done as a politician, and she, and she did good things, and as many politicians, you know, politicians on the whole are out to do good, uh, and yet they are hounded because they've spent too much on getting, you know, Sky News in or a donation or, or whatever it is. And, I'm, and it's never put in perspective either by the media or by... Um, the uh, well, the the obviously the the, the um, opposition um, and by the people who ring phone-ins, and I think the same to a great extent is happening with uh, with business now. And of course, you know what Liam says about the subprime mortgage is unanswerable. But again, there's no sense of perspective in it, in that people behave really badly. You know, we know where they are, but then we we sort of subsume in there, make similar criticisms about people who maybe have sort of crossed some quite intangible line. So I, th I think, I just, all I, this is really is, is, I mean, I'm interested to hear what the panel say about it, is a plea for some sort of perspective to be put in on the whole debate, both for politicians and, and for people who work in business. Okay. Having a balanced sense of perspective, is that uh, yes. a reasonable plea? It's always easy after the event. To, uh, to sort of look back and say, why did they do that at the time? Uh, and and I, I have to say, I've been around so bloody long. I've been, I've been through seven recessions uh, in, in, line, in, line, in line management. And it's always the same. When you, in the up part of the cycle, why aren't you investing enough? Why aren't you taking more risk with your business to grow it faster? 
And then when the recession bites or the slowdown comes, gosh, that was too much risk. And you shouldn't have done that. Uh, terribly is in hindsight. Uh, subprime mortgages, yes. Uh, uh, very easy now in hindsight to say that this money should not have been loaned to those people uh, on those terms. There should have been a much bigger risk margin if you were looking at it from a business point of view or much greater deposits, uh, much greater security on the assets. But you've got to bear in mind we've been in a long up cycle where uh, everybody took it as a right to have a house. Uh, uh, financial liquidity was very, very long, caused by very loose fiscal policy, which put a lot of money into the system. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, it's very easy in hindsight to blame everybody participating, both the consumer and, and the bank. Uh, so perspective, a long perspective of these cycles, I think is quite well, important. Well, I think we, we should give the last word to Kip here on this, and then we'll, we'll bring it to a conclusion. Well, I, I think the perspective is, as you say, uh, obviously made, easily made with hindsight, not so easy to make when the headlines are uh, not got much perspective in them at all. And I think the, the key word for, for government in response to any of these crises is, is, is a period of masterly inactivity. Because rushing in to legislate, you know, on the back of it, however dreadful or obvious quote with hindsight it is, is, is almost invariably not, not the right answer and doesn't produce good legislation for, for the future. So if, if you need rules and legislation in due course, fine, but the key thing is a little bit of masterly inactivity. And perhaps that creates the period during which perspective well, that brings the session to an end. I think the con only conclusion you can come to is that neither business nor politicians hold the high ground in, uh, uh, in, uh, in this area. And there are going to be constant debates. And I am encouraged, actually, by, for example, if you think in politics, the amount of effort politicians are spending in trying to convince people that they can restore trust in this, that or the other. Uh, that ethical issues are having a significant uh, influence on, on political life in this, uh, uh, in this country. I'd like to very much thank the panel for exploring their thoughts on the issue and to thank you for coming forward with some uh, really excellent comments and sharp questions that force them to think deep on these particular issues. Thank you all very much for coming. Can I thank Editorial Intelligence, uh, Institute of Business Ethics and KPMG for taking the initiative to get this event uh, off the ground and I and hope you've Taylor enjoyed it. And Taylor Bennett. <laughs> sorry? Taylor Bennett. Oh, I do apologise. <laughs> wasn't on my list here, sorry. Uh, uh, thank you all uh, for coming and do have a safe journey home. Thank you.